Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. I am sure of one fact, and that is that men are afraid to die, and equally certain that such a lack of fortitude in the face of death in a good man is a poor barometer to display the faith he possesses. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today, we're listening to a sermon by John Clark. It was preached sometime in the early 1600s in colonial America. Joel, I wanted to share some exciting information. We kind of were talking about it um, a little bit before the recording button, but just we as a studio have hit 550,000 downloads across Revive Thought, between Revive Thoughts, Martyrs and Missionaries, Revive Devos. Um, the studio. We've, yeah. yeah, we as a studio have hit over half, a, well over half a million, actually. I, I haven't really been keeping a uh, super good track of it. Like, I'll watch, like, kind of the weekly stuff, but I have not been focused on the overall. And we, I normally try to announce whenever we hit 100,000. We, we passed 400,000 quite a while ago, and then we passed half a million, and I didn't quite notice it. So at 550,000 celebratory uh, we've been we've been downloaded that many times across a couple of shows. Revive thoughts being um, you know several hundred thousand of that, but Mars and missionaries and Revive Devos doing their part too. So it's been really cool. Uh, if you don't know much about downloads, you don't know much about podcasts. You know it's very different than YouTube, where you know a video having five hundred fifty thousand views is great, but that's pretty normal to to do podcasting. Um, there are a lot less bots on the feeds, and every time you get a download, it's quite successful. So to have over half a million. Um, across these studios, like on a church history podcast, no less. It's not exactly appealing to uh, every single listener in the world. That is, it is quite incredible. And when I was looking at some other things too, there's a website dedicated to uh, doing stats and checking different podcasts and stuff out and measuring them against each other. And right now, Revive Thoughts ranks in the top one percent of active podcasts. So that is. Uh, Not just people who started podcasting but quit, but actually the currently uploading ones, we can now say that we are in the top 1%. So that is uh, just a lot of cool, really exciting information that we don't normally share or talk about as much. But I wanted to share that with you and wanted to share that with everyone listening so that they can uh, just be excited. And God is using church history in a lot of people's lives, and it's been really cool to see. Yeah, it's neat to see that there there is an audience. Like that's, I mean, that's what we've seen over the years, and that's what we and, and that was the one question we had going into this project was like, it's a neat project. Will people listen to it? Will, will people like it? And uh, if there's one thing that is clear, it's that yes, there there are people that like this type of content. There are people that uh, there there is a it's a niche audience, it's a specific audience, but it's there. Uh, and it's really encouraging it to us to see people say, you know, we 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 like this content. Well, I would even, uh, I'm going to say I'm going to push back on that, Joel. I even think back. that the fact that the audience is niche is not quite what it was. I am seeing that based on the fact that we have young people, we have old people, we have pastors, we have uh, you know people who are part timers, and we have people all over the place listening, all over the world too. We have lots of listeners that are not uh, English native English speakers. When I compared our show to a lot of other. Uh, Christian podcasts, we actually have a substantially larger uh, population outside of America than a lot of other podcasts do. Probably, like I would say when I was looking at podcasts, a lot of your average Christian podcasts that are, you know, especially similar size to us, they have 98%, you know, America based, but we were looking at much more like 80%, which means there's a lot of people who English is not their native language, but they're learning church history 
uh, from our show because we're making we're able to make it a little bit more accessible. But I would say I think church history is starting to catch on with more Christians. I think more Christians sure, as, they, yeah. as they're going through different times, as things are getting maybe in some places harder, I think people are kind of needing encouragement from the past saying, hey, how can I deepen my faith and grow closer? I think that church history is starting to catch on with more people and they're realizing this is a real comforting place to go to to learn about those who have come before. Yeah, and it also just goes to show you that the Word of God is timeless. It's Amen. The, the, the sermons back then are just as good. It's the same Bible we're, we're looking at and, and preaching out of. So, Amen. Uh, John Clark. Okay, this man. John Clark is who we're talking about uh, today, an extremely important person in American history, uh, Baptist history, and in many other ways as well. But his early life still remains a, a, a large mystery, which is not uncommon during this era. We look at, you know, late, late 1500s, early 1600s, um, definitely one of those eras where you didn't write it down unless you were like royalty, a noble household. So we know he was born in 1609, and we know he got a ma- where We think, from what we can tell, he had a master's degree, although we don't know. We No one knows where it came from. It would have been like uh, Oxford or Cambridge. Oxford, yeah. Yeah, or Cambridge, yeah. But he, he, we don't, we don't have it documented. He doesn't have it framed on his wall for us to to see what school <laughs> he went to. We also know that he was a medical doctor, so he he trained to be a medical doctor in Holland. We know that much, and he comes from a bigger family. And most of his family, most of his siblings, migrated to colonial America, and he would join them in 1637 when he was 28 years old. He qualified to be a Baptist minister. He married, he, he started a family, and he practiced as, as a doctor, but also as a minister. Again, the details are, are sparse on, you know, what that, what that, I mean, I guess, I guess in colonial America, you, you, everyone was wearing multiple hats, doing multiple things. He is no exception, I suppose, to that. One of the things that makes uh, it difficult to research and to look into John Clark is that John Clark it's actually a pretty common name back then. There's lots of different John Clarks. There's lots of different John Clarks that went to school in your Oxfords and Cambridges. There's lots of different Clarks that migrated to America during this era. And so when we see these names pop up in history, uh, we can't say for certainty that this is our John Clark per se. So there's a little bit of detective work that ha- happens there on our side. When he arrived in the New World, he showed up in the middle of an explosive controversy that was rocking New England at the time. It was called the Antinomium controversy. Now, you may not know all the characters. I'm going to include the name of a couple of them. One of them was really important and is important. uh, John Cotton and his followers are on one side. And this guy, he's one of the biggest ministers uh, in the world. Cotton Mather, who we have done a sermon on is actually named after this John Cotton. So this is a big deal. Kind of a even Jonathan Edwards might have. It's it's not a lot of evidence, but might have been even a descendant of John Cotton. So he's a big deal at the time, especially in Massachusetts and kind of the New World colonial area era. And he's on one side and we're hoping to do an episode on him at some point. And on the other side you have this governor and several other people and they're kind of all working back and forth here. And without going all into it, because we can kind of save it for the John Cotton episode, one side was calling themselves the free grace, but their opponents called them antinomian. And they said, hey, look, we're more focused on grace for people on the other side. And they're saying, hey, you know, we, we think you're too focused on works. And this is a big back and forth. And, and honestly, I think that's still kind of a big back and forth that happens today in Christian circles. You know, you're too focused on works. You're too focused on, you know, free grace or cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer called it. It can go back and forth. This is not 
just relegated to this time period. But the majority of Puritans were saying, if you are saved spiritually, then it presents itself in the works of your life. This smaller group, the antinomians, that, as they were called, supported kind of this idea that whether you are saved or not, it's a spiritual work. And so it's not tied directly to the things that you do. And what started as kind of just a controversy soon spun out of control. One woman kind of became central to the antinomian side. She was a congregant at John Cotton's church, but she kept kind of spinning out until eventually in a church court trial, which they had those back then. Uh, she said she had personal revelations from God that she said equated to scripture. And at one point she put a curse on the people in the trial saying, if you continue this, I put you all under a curse. Well, Again, we don't have church court trials now, but I think if you were in one, it would be a bad idea to try to put a curse on everybody and say everything you say is equal to God. And that did not go well for her, so they banished her from the colony. At the time, the person doing the banishing was John Winthrop, who we have also done an episode on. Go check him out and listen to his City on a Hill sermon sometime. Very, very good. Um, but yeah, it was. So this was a big controversy. What does all this have to do with John Clark? Yeah, John Clark. I, I I do find it interesting that like it's still uh, that debate is still present today, and you know was present before this era as well. These these things that people talk about or you know debate about, um, they they go through time like this, right? Yeah. Well, John Clark you know, arriving in colonial America during all that, you know, gets dropped off the boat, and you see these these religious court hearings where people are being accused and things are being cursed all in a very official court setting. And he's saying, wait a second, this is what I was getting away from by coming here in the first place. You know, they, uh, this is not what I wanted to come to America for. And so uh, he and his buddies, you know, the little group, they escape away uh, to start their own settlement. They first went north because they thought the summers were very hot, but uh, <laughs> then they ran into a winter and they thought that was way worse than a hot summer. So they came back down south. They end up settling in Rhode Island, which if you ask me, is still way too far north for as far yeah. as the winters go. That, it was really funny to me that they're like, oh man, Rhode Island is just, you know, that's, I guess, the summer I can tolerate. I guess they are coming from England, but in my mind, my goodness, that's not exactly a tolerable uh, a winter. <laughs> yeah, they wanted real, the most mildest summer you could possibly get. Above all else, <laughs> prioritize a nice ball me 60 degrees in the heat of summer. It is funny to think about too that I mean to a degree Rhode Island was because I mean Rhode Island is such a small state but it was partially chosen as a settlement due to the weather. Yeah yeah I, and it's accessible it makes sense but uh, it's just funny that they were just like whew man winter that's actually way harsher let's go down to Rhode Island <laughs> which in my eyes. Practically palm tree weather down there. <laughs> Newport is where they settled and uh, he became the head of the Baptist church in that area, the second official Baptist church in all of America. Baptists were not welcome in America, which to me kind of sounds funny. I mean, 400 years or so later, I mean, Baptists are one of the biggest denominations in the world, but especially in America, Southern Baptists and Baptists make up a huge amount of people. So it's kind of odd to think at one point, like that wasn't, they weren't even really allowed and you weren't really supposed to have Baptist churches at all. And yet, uh, the, you know, we talk a lot about in this series with John Flavel and, and Tom and not Thomas, Watson, but so many different people we've talked about that were Puritans that weren't allowed to preach openly and that they went in you know, John Bunyan. All these people went through these hard times. We've done so many episodes on them, but 50 to 60 years before all that was going on, 
in America, the, you know, the Puritans were not allowing the Baptists to gather together and do things. And they were kind of doing the same stuff to the Baptists that, you know, later on happened to the Puritans by the Anglicans. So all these kind of groups are kind of back and forthing on each other a little bit here. Now, one of the most important events in Clark's life ends up happening in 1651. He and a friend uh, and a kind of kind of colleague, they go together, um, and one of the gentlemen is named Obadiah Holmes, and they go to visit an elderly congregant um, in, who's in living near Boston. He couldn't make the journey to Rhode Island, but he is a Baptist like them, and he really wanted to just kind of you know have a chance to take communion and hear the word. He hasn't been able to go in a while. He's quite ill and all that kind of stuff, and they're like, yeah, let's, we're going to go over to the Massachusetts colony and, and visit you and kind of you know re- re- replenish you in fellowship, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, the people of Massachusetts heard about what was going on. And in the middle of uh, Clark kind of preaching a sermon and then, you know, getting ready to have communion together inside of this guy's house, two officers of the law show up ready to arrest them. And they showed up while Clark was giving this uh, little sermon. Again, this is a small group of people just here inside of a house. And they had talked about this. They knew they might encounter some resistance. And Clark made it clear ahead of time that, you know, there's to be no resistance. If someone comes in to arrest us, we submit, right? We go with them. And so they were taken to jail. They spent two weeks in jail. And they were told that they could pay a fine of 30 pounds and could leave if that was the case. And Clark initially refused to pay, but he had some buddies that paid for him. And, and got him out, even though even though he wasn't he wasn't willing to cooperate. Obadiah Holmes, on the other hand, who would eventually serve as John's successor and the head pastor of Newport, he refused to pay his fine. He felt that he didn't do anything wrong, and so he was taken to the post where you were to be beat, to be tortured, essentially, right? And on his way, he said, "I count myself blessed to suffer the name of Christ." And his torturer, his his enforcer got annoyed with him, and they started arguing, and, and his torturer would call him a heretic. The two debated back and forth, and, you know, as a side note, I probably would not pick a fight with the guy that is, uh, his job is to make you feel pain. That seems like, that seems like a bad, a bad argument, a bad, mm-hmm. a bad fight to champion there, but that he was standing I, I think, his ground. It's it's not considered the best advice to get to get in a fight with a right. guy who's about to beat you. And yet, I love the I love this ending, Joel, because I think I think Holmes in some ways gets the better of him. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, they tie him to this post and they whip him. They beat him thirty times. And at the end of it, Holmes yells back, "You have struck me with roses," which is pretty hardcore. I, I mean, yeah. that's that's pretty boss. If he if if he did nothing else in his life, but he had just landed that line after that, <laughs> well, what, were those what a roses? What what are you hitting me with? Yeah, I mean, my it's like it, it. What a what a great statement at the end, right? Now, to the contrary to his statement, he nearly died. Um, he was so wounded; it was weeks before he'd be able to lay on his back uh, again because it was so deeply scarred and just wounded and suffering so badly. He had to sleep for weeks on his elbows and his knees. And the wounds are so deep that for the rest of his life, when he would show people the scars he got on his back, people couldn't believe that he had survived. They were just like, it's amazing that you are alive, considering what I'm looking at right now. At the same time as this event, Rhode Island is actually in real peril of being eliminated. The year is 1651. If you know much about uh, history, you would know that at this point, the King of England has been deposed and the Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans are running England. And and a lot of times we kind of look at that. Okay, It's not such a bad thing. Uh, for the Puritans, it certainly wasn't too bad a thing. But if you're in the situation Rhode Island is in, you're running kind of the only, not a Baptist colony, but you have a lot of Baptists and Baptists feel safe there. 
it's not a good place to be. Massachusetts and Connecticut want that land, and they don't really care for the fact that the there's a Baptist church there, and the people there are kind of preaching this religious tolerance thing. During the time that the King of England was deposed, this put them in real trouble. And so Clark goes to England basically to try to figure out how can I get support? How can I get some kind of throne or somebody to acknowledge and allow Rhode Island to exist before Connecticut and Massachusetts, which have already kind of been sending people over, causing a little bit of problems before they take this Rhode Island directly away from us. Now, it will be years. If you know the history, you know that um, it's going to be years before England gets a king again. And during that time, he writes kind of a pamphlet uh, talking about what happened to Obadiah Holmes, and it gets around, it becomes kind of famous and international, and it makes the New England Puritans actually look pretty bad. They kind of get uh, egg on their face about the situation that they beat somebody for hosting a kind of basically a Bible study for an old man. It doesn't make them look good. And in reality, actually, over time, more laws got passed kind of to allow freedom for Baptists and stuff like that because of the uh, the shame of kind of that situation. So he used the time well to kind of say, hey, like, this wasn't cool. We shouldn't be doing this to each other. And eventually in 1663, he is able to get a Rhode Island royal charter once the th- king is back on the throne that officially allows Rhode Island to exist as a place for religious tolerance and not a place to enforce, uh, you know, Puritan ideals on them. And obviously part of that was because the king was not very friendly to the Puritans at that time. And the Puritans are having their own problems. It's a man, there's so much going on. I, we skipped over so many stories and details and anecdotes. John Clark was a really important person, and it was said of him that he was the most important Baptist that lived in that century. Certainly, if you were in America, you would probably agree with that statement. But one of the main things that motivated Clark was just the idea of freedom of religion for people to be able to worship freely without the fear of the state coming to quite, you know, quite literally beat you or kill you or whatever. I think he would have looked back at what was happening in New in England, where the king was treating the Puritans badly, and to say that's also wrong. Let's just all worship as we are feeling called to do so, not enforcing with the state and the sword uh, a certain version of Christianity that ousts everyone else. Now, a little side note, Obadiah Holmes, who we mentioned, uh, kind of an interesting life because he ends up being the, uh, I don't know if I got enough greats in this, but he ends up being the great, 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 great grandfather of Abraham Lincoln. So just kind of a little interesting thought there that had Obadiah Holmes not survived his 30 lashes, had he not been able to recover from those back wounds while sleeping on his hands and knees or had or elbows and knees, had he not actually officially made it to the end, Abraham Lincoln would not have been the 16th president of the United States because he was a direct descendant of his. Just some interesting things to think about as you get ready to listen to this sermon by John Clark called The Desire of Life. Remember, Lord, how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. 2 Kings 20, verse 3. That many good Christians should suffer from the fear of death has been a matter of great surprise to all. We would imagine that men who believe what we do would meet the king of terrors without worry. Having long recognized that they will die, 
We imagine in their final moments, they would trust in the excellency of their faith and go to death glorious and triumphant with hopes of life and immortality. But experience shows us that this is far from actually being the case. We only have to look into the world and we will see some of the best men who live go through fear of death and are subject to bondage. And we watch them go off the stage of life with a timid reluctance. This is dishonor, even for the guiltiest criminals, whether it is the prejudice of knowing too much, which operates so forcibly in our dying moments, whether we are terrified with the thought of the winding sheet and a coffin, mourning friends and the funeral bells, whether it is the anxiety, that mighty shock, which will dissolve the long-established bond between soul and body, or whether it is an approaching introduction to a new and undiscovered life from which no traveler returns, I tell you, whether it is one or all these fears united that fills us with such gloomy apprehensions, I will leave for someone better to decide. But I am sure of one fact, and that is that men are afraid to die and equally certain that such a lack of fortitude in the face of death in a good man is a poor barometer to display the faith he possesses. It carries with it a suspicious appearance. It would lead an indifferent person to imagine that the friendship of religion was like the friendship of the world, that she was full of kind offers when we need nothing from her, but be sure to abandon us when we stood in most need of her assistance. Such a suspicion, unjust as it is, was the language of the character before us. Hezekiah had long held the Jewish scepter with honor and reputation. He had seen the enemies fall before him, and from the conduct of the divine providence towards him and his kingdom, had all the reason to think he was no small favorite with the Lord his God. After a while, however, Hezekiah was sick to the point of death. and The prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, came to him and said to him, so says the Lord, set your house in order, for you will die and not live. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, I beg you, Lord, remember now how I have walked before you in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept. Never was the fear of death painted in stronger colors than in the language and behavior of this king. Despite the approval of a good conscience and despite the comfortable hope he had of a happy existence in the heavenly world, he still could not bear the thought of leaving the present, to leave the crown, his kingdom, and all the regal honors behind, and to launch in an unknown, untested eternity. He could not reflect upon it without sadness. Accordingly, as you ex would expect of a good man, he first took himself to prayer. He spread his case before him who is equally able to kill and to make alive, to wound and to heal. He recounted some of those virtues upon which he could best make a case for mercy. He did not forget his integrity, his involuble regard for truth, and the prevailing innocence of his walk and conversation. And in proof of the labor and anguish of his soul, he concluded all his position with a flood of tears. Strange behavior is this in such an admirable character as that of Hezekiah. Had he been some wicked wretch who had nothing to hope but everything to fear from his lord and judge, 
No wonder the prospect of death should fill him with apprehensions. Tribulation and anguish belong to the people in this guilty class. But when we take a view of the life and actions of Hezekiah and consider his uprightness, we cannot but remember our surprise that he should ever fall prey to such a weakness as the fear of death. You would assume he would have blessed the the prophet for his joyful prediction. And rather than turn his face away and weep, that he would greet him kindly as the welcome messenger of happy tidings. Come on, Hezekiah. Is the present world a place of such peace and rest? Are its pleasures so superior to the delight of heaven that you would not wish to make an exchange? Is your happiness so perfect that you would have nothing left to wish for? Is the Jewish crown rather to be chosen than a crown of glory? And is an earthly kingdom preferable to a kingdom that cannot be moved? Can infinite power, under the conduct of unerring wisdom and goodness, come up with no way to enhance your happiness? If so, you may really weep at the thought of dying. But if you have so much to plead on the score of merit as did Hezekiah, and if, as you had already asserted, it had been the constant study of your life to do that which is well-pleasing in the sight of God, and can promise yourself a crown of glory in the coming world, then your fears are not just distressing, but they are groundless and absurd. For shame, man. Welcome the moment that will deliver you from this body of death. Thank God that the time is now at hand when you will rest from all your labors in sure and certain hope that your works will follow you. For you cannot be ignorant that although this earthly house of your tabernacle will be dissolved, you will have a building of God, a house not made with hands, but eternal in the heavens. And yet something surprising as we read in the following verses, it came to pass before Isaiah had left the middle court that the word of the Lord came to him saying, turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people. So says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer and I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, we will go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add to your life 15 years. Happy King, we may easily imagine your feeling upon this joyful occasion. We may almost see you bestowing hugs upon the prophet, how your mourning was converted into joy, how your face brightens at the recollection of your narrow escape. And with what rapture does your heart swell at the thought of 15 long years in this delightful world? It must surely be news too good to be true. But leaving the particular situation of the Jewish monarch, let us engage our present day. We do this by understanding what it was the monarch was so afraid of in the form of death. And then secondly, point out the best arguments to fortify ourselves against it. As the circumstances of Hezekiah's illness to take away, one's life may someday be our own. I expect neither you, my hearers, nor I think ourselves uninterested in understanding this. Yet a little while on this earth, and we will be no more. The dread summons will soon reach our ears. So says the Lord, set your house in order, for you will die. Happy for us if in that trying moment we can offer our souls in peace. Happy if we can have such a command over our fears as to adopt the triumphant language of the apostle. We are now ready to be offered, and the time of our departure is at hand. We have fought a good fight. We have finished our course. We have kept the faith. From 
point there is laid up for us a crown of righteousness, which the Lord of righteousness, judge, will give on that day. How different this is from the weak and timid behavior of Hezekiah. To be able to surrender with such divine composure and to submit with such heroic fortitude, it is conquering death rather than falling before him. Then we may disappoint death of all his triumphs when we surrender our breath without a single regret. First, why is it that the prospect of a speedy end so often strikes us with such special terror? Well, if death puts a final period to our existence, we cannot be surprised if it has this kind of effect. To die, to sleep without the possibility of ever awakening from our iron slumbers, the thought of it is enough to drive us crazy. If we persuade ourselves that when death has made us his prisoners, we will never regain our liberty, we have plenty of reason to join the Jewish prince and turn away and weep. And 15 years, when you look at it that way, is a generous gift. It is by no means to be taken for granted. But when we consider what Jesus Christ has done for a ruined world and how he has destroyed him who had the power of death, how he has plucked the string from that merciless tyrant and foiled the grave of his victory, when we consider how he has brought life and immortality to light and given us a pledge and promise of our future resurrection, I say, when we take all these truths into consideration, then why should we have such a timid reluctance at leaving the world? Can an enemy tied, chained, and almost entirely disarmed still be an object of such unmanly and unbecoming fear? Humans situated as we are in physical bodies could not succeed if there was not at least some fear of death. For this reason, God has set in our heart a principle of fear within. Knowing that without it, the great goal and design of our creation would be defeated. For in the first place, if we did not treat death with some degree of terror, we should take no pains to provide against those accidents to which we are hourly exposed. We should go carelessly in the face of danger, and many times over, we would end up killed. The crumbling bridge or the tottering tower, we would pass by with a stupid lack of care. And surrounded as we are, with dangers and evil of every kind, without a fear of death, it is unlikely one in a thousand would live out half his days. Nor would the more lazy part of mankind exert themselves to prolong life at the expense of so much work and toil. They would never rise early or stay up late. They would never search the earth for a hint of food, nor would they worry themselves with the various cares and concerns of life. If they could not live without the continued sweat of work, they would let nature take its course and lose a gift they did not think was worth their acceptance. But now all this trouble is happily prevented by implanting within us a measure of this necessary fear God has amply provided for our security. Even if the roads to death are everywhere, our natural caution will not fail, if it is possible to stop us from taking it. Our fears will always outrun our dangers, and we will not think the work too great nor the toil unbearable, which rewards us within longer days. 
But secondly, without a principal fear, men would not just perceive the advance of death with a cold indifference, but they would even hurry them on by violent measures. Upon every slight offense and frustration within the world, they would be ready to put themselves out of it. If their domestic matters took an unfavorable turn, or if their ambitious views they were disappointed greatly, they would not suffer long under it. The first cliff they could find, or the first instrument of death they could meet, would put an instant end to their sorrow. They would never submit to the trouble of poverty. They would never languish on the bed of sickness. Wearisome nights and tormenting days, they would refuse to endure. The slave would soon rest from his work, and the prisoner would set himself free from this life. And if the world did not move just as we would like it, we would not concern ourselves with bidding it goodbye. And there would be no boundaries of the violence that would take place in a world with no fear of death. The corruptions of mankind would rage without control. Suicide and murder would be no rarity. But the whole world would soon turn into a coliseum, an arena filled with blood. Such would be the situation if this fear of death was entirely taken away. We know it would be like this because of how bad things are with the fear of death present. Despite the power of this fear, we find some will perish by their own hands anyways. Mistaken honor, disappointed ambition, cowardice, undeserved hate, revenge, or grief may drive them to such an unnatural deed as suicide, even with the fear of death present. And with the fear of death present, wrath or malice may convince them to act out terrible violence upon another person. So, how much more would we act rashly and terribly if the fear of death was not so formidable? And if our present fear of our, an untimely end are not an effective security against the hand of violence, what havoc and what destruction would endure if those fears weren't present in us? From this view, the fear of death was wisely ordained. And even though Hezekiah had no reason to weep, but a degree of terror was not incompatible with his character or profession. Third, the fear of death also causes us to think about our future state and engage with us to prepare for it. We all know very rarely we would think of the place of our final destination if it were not for the dark valley of death which takes us to it. If we knew for sure we'd be taken up without dying in the end like the old prophet Elijah, we wouldn't think about it ever again. We would be too quick to say, Soul, you are safe. Eat, drink, and be merry. Let nothing disturb your happiness. Let nothing interrupt your peace. But now the case is very different. The specter of death, so awful to imagine, will continue to show up in our minds. It will intrude upon our happiest moments and even throw a gloom over all the highest delights of life. In the midst of sensual gratification, it will fall upon us. It will rise with us in the morning, and it won't fully leave us at night. And what is very extraordinary about it, the more we work to banish it from our thoughts, the more stubbornly it returns to the mind. And this is absolutely necessary, for humans are designed for a different and better place. Even though death is the principal object of our terror, Yet, it does not restrict our thoughts to just death. It leads to a series of useful thoughts. It hurries us through all the different scenes which happen upon leaving the world. 
And in our thoughts, we find ourselves summoned before the judgment seat of our Redeemer and condemned or acquitted according to our works. And in this way, the fear of death is of vast and eternal importance. For it continually reminds us of a life to come after this one. It awakens us from the dull rhythm of a vain, sensual, and earthly heart. It forces us to become serious. It encourages us to listen to the voice of God, to prepare for that happier world, the hope of which is open to us in the gospel. This is the tendency of that passion which worked so powerfully in Hezekiah and which works to some degree in us all. And when it occurs correctly, it is both innocent and useful. Now we have considered the fear of death as implanted in us by the wise author of our frame and have shown how it may be used to grow us in the faith. But there are other accidental aspects of the fear of death which has raised our terror of it too high, such as the ideas we learn of it in childhood and youth, which grow with us as we advance in life and cannot be fully corrected by the wisdom and experience of older age. The awful appearances of death makes a deep impression on the young mind. The funeral service, the coffin, the grave, they are objects that are especially shocking to that period of life. The child seldom hears or thinks of death without remembering all the melancholy circumstances that attend. And the same principle has its influence over men who are only children of a larger growth. They view themselves as already born in solemn circumstances. They then frighten themselves with the thought of the narrow confines of the grave. They think of their odious appearance when the king of terrors works his horrid decay on their bodies, when the worms feed sweetly on them, their whole frame returns to its native dust. These and a thousand other dread images will often haunt the good man upon his deathbed. And without too much controversy, we can say they rushed upon the minds of Hezekiah and caused that worthy prince to weep. But this is not all. The tender connections we leave behind will add new fears to our last change. Who can think of bidding a final goodbye to the fond parent, the cheerful friend, the dutiful child, without being terribly distressed? If the absence of a few days from the embraces of those we love creates uneasy, won't rivers of water run down our cheeks when we consider that the eyes which now see them must never see them again, when we realize that we can never never return to them. We can never hear of their welfare again. We can know nothing more of them. And won't heaven forgive the tear that is shed on such an occasion? Won't a merciful Redeemer pardon the man who regrets leaving a helpless family to the mercy of the world? But another reason which makes us so fearfully apprehensive of dying is the pain which we imagine accompanies that great event. If the loss of a limb will throw us into horrible agonies, we imagine the loss of life must have much greater levels of pain. And this concept is strengthened by the appearance of many people in their last moments. When we see them distorted and we hear their dying groans and behold their eyes rolling and observe their final gasps, but this is certainly a gross misconception. Much of life is pain, and some of it is far worse 
than what happens at the moment of death. After long sickness, the body loses its senses. And when this is the case, every new wound that is opened inside us, nature kindly covers with a total disregard. We cannot suffer pain beyond a certain point. Here, the most dreadful illnesses, after a while, spreads their united rage upon us in vain. So, do not let anyone tremble at death merely on account of the agony of dying, since it is more than probable they have felt as great or perhaps greater pain many times in their life. But to continue, we enter the valley of death with a timid reluctance because we do not understand the land to which it leads. With such senses as we currently have, it is impossible that we should have any real understanding of the invisible world beyond. We cannot comprehend it through the veil of flesh, and no traveler has yet returned to bring us good data on it. And though the gospel has thrown some light on the subject, it's still true that whenever it gets a hold of our thoughts, we find ourselves lost in our own imagination. This becomes another situation in which death becomes an object of terror to us. If we could properly conceive and understand the next life, then our fears would be calmed. Leaving for an undiscovered land is frightening to us in this earth. We trade our familiar friends for a new acquaintance. When we think of the different scenes and changes that will take place when setting out for a new land and all the new objects which will come before us, it can be frightening. And then when we consider death to be like this, and we think about how it takes us to where no eye is seen and no ear heard, we cannot keep our usual calm. Our heart will thump inside of our chest with fear no matter how we attempt to calm it. Lastly, we shudder at the thought of dying because we know we will next appear at the judgment of our Redeemer. After death comes the judgment. No sooner will we close our eyes upon this world than we will open them to another world. Is it such a surprise that any person should tremble at the thought of being introduced to Jesus the mediator and God the judge of all? Who has read the scripture that speaks of these last days that has imagined the heavens rolled back as a scroll and was not afraid? Who has imagined the trumpet sound and imagined seeing the Son of Man on the throne of his glory and all the dead, both small and great, assembled around it without fear? Who that has any faith in the gospel revelation, could resign himself to death with this all in mind, with perfect composure. The power of such a scene overwhelms us when we are at the peak of health. No surprise if when we are exhausted with pain and sickness, the mind should be crushed and despair imagine it. If when death is far from us, it strikes us with such terror, it is understandable that it would terrify us when we perceive it, just a few short minutes away for us. Having now finished our observations upon the nature, cause, and measure of this weakness, we will conclude the discourse with some directions as the best cure against it. We have already established that the fear of death is useful to some degree. That is absolutely essential to being alive. I will attempt now to fortify you against that unmanly fear which works so powerfully in Hezekiah and betrayed him into the weakness we see in the text. 
And in order to do this, let us first make the thought of dying familiar to our minds. The most frightening objects lose their horror when we have long accustomed ourselves to think about them. Come when he will, we should receive that grim tyrant without surprise. The attitude of Hezekiah was probably owing to an extreme lateness in considering this aspect of life. Had he given himself time to think about the fact that he would someday die, he would not have prayed so ardently, nor have wept so bitterly when it arrived. Secondly, let it be our great goal to live in continued preparation for the hour of death. If we have no reason to hope that our evil is forgiven or our sins covered, we may very justifiably be aghast at the prospect of our end coming soon. But when we can lay our hands upon our chest and say from the heart, we have fought a good fight, we have finished our course, we have completed the whole work of our maker gave to us to do, and when we can produce the testimony of a good conscience, a conscience where there is little place for terror or disquiet due to sin, when the general tone of our lives has been conformed to the gospel, it is foolish to surrender to the power of mindless fear and panic. Since we have the highest reason to do so, we should rejoice in our dying moments. We will rejoice at the prospect of this life being over when we actually have a good conscience. And although there may be some instances where we fail, yet this will be our confidence when we will be with the greater part of those who have walked in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blamelessly. Even though Hezekiah may weep and discover all that terror which belongs only to the guilty and unforgiving persons, yet there should be many others who enter the valley of death with manly resolution. This is what a conscience full of integrity should never fail to inspire. But thirdly, as an additional boundary against the fear of death, we should attempt to get the better of these shadows which enter the mind in early life. It is a shame for any man who has arrived at full maturity to suffer any uneasiness because of those foolish thoughts from their youth about death. For even though his lifeless corpse is wrapped and placed in the grave, and even though his body is confined within the narrow dimensions of a tomb, and even though he knows his body will decay, yet none of these things should shake him, for he will not be conscious of his confinement and will feel none of the effects that occur to his physical flesh. He may set his mind perfectly at ease about all that happens to his dead body. Neither, fourthly, should he distress himself about those he may leave behind. There is a father for the fatherless, and for the widow there is a God. He that numbers the hairs of the head and suffers not a sparrow to fall unnoticed to the ground will never forget his children. A manly dependence and trust on the care and protection of heaven will therefore be a great support in our last hours. And if we completely believe in this worthy principle, we will not despair when called to heaven, though we are torn from our nearest relations. Again, Apprehensions about the God whose judgment seat we will someday stand before in this life will help allay our fears of death when the hour comes. It is not a stern tyrant to whom we must give an account to, but a merciful parent who knows our frame and remembers we are dust. He will make all possible grace 
for our many imperfections and will deal with us accordingly to the principles of infinite kindness and benevolence. It is not a lofty and hateful judge who will pronounce our doom, but one who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities and having been tempted as we are, though without sin, in a world if it is appointed for all of us once to die and the grave is the home of all the living, let us each now seriously lay it to heart. Isn't it true, my hearers, that yet a little while and you and I will be no more? Won't your ears, which hear these words, soon only hear silence? And my lips, which utter them, will soon cease to move. Won't your eyes, which see this light right now, soon be closed in darkness? If so, let us each live only to die, that when we die, we may live forever. Let us number our days as to apply our hearts to wisdom. Let us work while the day lasts, because the night is at hand when no man can work. Then we will live in peace when we are called from here. We will quit the world without regret. Then may we rest in the certain hope of joining that happy number who will have a place in the first resurrection on whom the second death will have no power. Those who will be kings to God, priests, and reign with him forever and ever. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Patrick Studebaker of the Cave to the Cross podcast. We love Patrick. He's been on our trivia nights. Uh, Definitely Mm -hmm. go check out his Cave to the Cross podcast. Uh, Subscribe. Links are in the description below. We opened this show thanking, uh, telling everyone, saying thank you, you know, that so many of you are listening to our show. It's incredible that you guys are. We do thank you. We know that we cannot do it without you listening. And we cannot do it without you telling other people about our show as well. We hope that you will send this episode or send a link to our podcast, maybe to a friend, maybe to a pastor, maybe to uh, someone that you know that would enjoy this kind of content, maybe to a family member and just say, hey, we think I think this is a show you might enjoy, might check it out. Um, it's got some interesting thoughts. What, what do you think about it? We love that sometimes we inspire conversations between people and it has just been uh, really edifying to see how many people enjoy listening to our shows and how much of our content has been able to lift people up. So we hope that you will be able to tell others about us still and continue to allow more people to listen to what we're doing here. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. <laughs>